It says, And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet, I'm sorry, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more than the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Then you jump down, and you don't have to turn there, but in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 19, it goes on to read, And the spirit, uh, the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David, even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. I want to talk with us for a little bit tonight on this topic. When you journey in the badlands, when you journey in the badlands, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Lord bless you tonight. When you journey in the badlands, most of us, I think, have a sense of fairness about us. Uh, most of us, uh, I think, and I like to believe that most people in their dealings uh, choose to be fair with one another. I can't think of anybody in this building tonight that I uh, would not want to deal fairly with. And I would feel and believe that you would deal back to me in a fair manner. Uh, despite that thought and despite that understanding, all of us understand that at some point in our life, whether we were a four-year-old child or a 40-year-old adult or an 80-year-old elder, there have been times when we've looked at a situation or we have looked at a circumstance and we have said, that's not fair. How many times have you had that in your own life when you've looked at things and you said, I understand how it happened, but that's not fair. My uncle used to say the best way to divide a candy bar between two kids, <clears throat> let one divide it and let the other one choose which piece he got. Because they will pull out the measuring tape and they will get the sharpest knife they can. And if any crumbs fall on the table, they will make sure that those are divided up as well. Why? They want fairness. They want it to be right. And they want it their way. And you know how it goes. Uh, the moment it's not, somebody's going to cry out, that's not fair. You know, and we often learn that even at a young age, we understand that maybe our parents looked at us and when we cried out to them that that's not fair, somebody else said, life isn't fair, get over it. Right. Ever had that happen? We don't like to hear that, do we? Oh, no, we want to coddle each other, and we want somebody to coddle us, and we want them to say, I know it, sweetheart, I'm so sorry, and I will try to do it. No, sometimes we just have to be uh, looked at and told, I understand it was wrong. I understand it wasn't fair. I understand that circumstances did not warrant that, uh, but you're going to have to somewhere along the line suck it up and understand life is not fair. And somebody else gets a raise and you didn't. Somebody else gets a promotion and you didn't. Maybe you deserved it more. But I want to tell you that as wonderful as we think we are and as much as we want to believe that as children of God, everything is supposed to be hunky-dory in our life, it is not always that way. 
Sometimes it just doesn't work out the way we anticipate it. Sometimes, although we lay the best plans in the world, when it comes down to it, it just does not happen. Although we work hard for things, and although we give of ourselves, and we share of ourselves, and we pour ourselves into things, there are times when through no fault of our own, that it just does not work. And so, we have to understand. And by on, in the onset of this service and this lesson tonight, I want us each and every one in this house to understand life is not fair. It isn't. You can have a prayer service where you are shouting and swinging from the chandeliers, but then go home and get a flat tire. Life's not fair. It's just not going to work out always the way they want it to work out. But I want you to understand that although life is not fair, that does not mean that that unfairness has to work against us. It doesn't mean that although life is not fair, in those unfair times, uh, that does not have to undo us uh, and unravel us uh, and cause us to feel uh, like we are open for despair and we're not going to ever gain or do anything. You see, what we find is in those moments when we are crying about not being fair, God is saying, you just need to worship me. You just need to give me praise. And you just need to give me glory. You see, quit worshiping yourself. Quit exalting yourself. Quit feeling that we ourselves sometimes have to have things better or we are do better or something belongs to us. I want you to understand all through life, whether you've already learned that or whether you are growing up into this thing, you're going to have to understand that because I'm a child of God does not mean that I'm not subject to the whims and the fancies of the world around me. There are times, I know I didn't cross the line, I started preaching. There are times when the only thing I can do, uh, I've had people come to me even as a pastor and they've sat down uh, and they've shared with me their circumstances uh, and they've wanted an answer, they've wanted a response uh, and there have been times uh, that I had to scratch my head uh, and say, look, uh, the only thing I can tell you is that I'm sorry this has happened uh, and I'm sorry you're going through this. Uh, I will pray with you. Uh, I will fast with you, but you've got to realize sometimes life just isn't fair. And although we've got all of these wonderful things going for us, but I will tell you this, when we come to grips with that and we begin to understand that the focus of our lives needs not to be on the fairness of how we are treated, but on the beauty and the power of who God is, we begin to turn a corner on all of those things that will come against us. You see, when we true worship the Lord, it begins to unfold in our lives. That is when God begins to shape us and mold us into the kind of person that he wants us to be. We can only be that hardened, strong character that God desires each of us to be when we have been tried, when we have been tested, when we have been pushed to our limit and still through it all we held on to God and we walked together and we bound together with brothers and sisters of like precious faith and we said I don't care that life isn't fair it doesn't always have to go my way because there's one thing I know like it or not there is a God in heaven that looks after me it just is not fair let's get back to David a little bit as for David, we read in 1 Samuel chapter number 13, verse number 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, speaking to Saul. 
Samuel was telling Saul that God was looking for somebody else. And yes, he had already found somebody else that was a man after his own heart. We read later in the book of 1 Kings, looking back over David in chapter 15, it says, And he walked in the sins of the father which he had done before him, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And we can read several moments in Scripture. In Acts chapter 13, they refer back to David, speaking about David, the son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart. That's quite a statement. Sister Carmen, a woman after God's own heart. Sister Pam, after God's own heart. Who wouldn't that? That's the way I want to be described. I, I don't. I don't want to be that short preacher, brother Hutchbeth. I love you, but I got to get some short friends. I don't want that to be my testimony. What I want it to be is that when they look at me and when they talk about me, I want them to say, Steve Horn, a man that loved God and sought God and reached out for the power of God and the glory of God. David had that testimony, but I want you to understand that testimony did not come without a price. It did not come without some hardships. In fact, if you were to look at David's life, you would begin to ask yourself how in the world can that be said about David you understand the story of Bathsheba he committed adultery he had a relationship with a woman that was somebody else's wife and when he was caught in that act he committed murder if you will by sending her husband to the front lines where they knew exactly what was going to happen you put him right up front you put him right where he will be killed immediately when the battle starts and that's what he did and he tried to cover it all up and hide it and I look at David and I begin to ask myself how in the world can somebody like David Somebody who found himself so easily setting aside the principles and the truths and the powerful things in the word of God that he knew better. And yet he got himself caught up in it anyway. How among all of those people can David be called a man after God's own heart? Can I tell you something? You're all right if I just take my time. I'm going to go over. I can promise you that right now. When you begin to work with people from this world and you begin to work with people in the house of God, it doesn't matter whether you've sat on a pew for 20 years. It doesn't matter whether you are brand new walking in the back door. People's lives are a mess. We have baggage that we carry with us from past relationships. We have baggage that we carry with us from previous hurts. We have baggage that we carry with us, some of it of our own making, some of it not. But nevertheless, it's still a heavy load to carry. And we come together and we worship together and we pray together and we seek the Lord together. But people's lives have messiness in them. And we have to be so careful that when we begin to look at the lives of one another, we understand that regardless of the messiness, regardless of the baggage, regardless of the past history, that although we can look and we can say you're an adulterer, you're a murderer, God looked at David and said there's a man that loves me. There was so much more to David than what his past showed him. There was so much more to David than what history put in his path. But we also understand that in the life of David, there were some times when things began to look ugly. Very, very ugly. Listen to these words. We read them earlier. 
that in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. That's a very ominous statement. He eyed him. In the Amplified Bible, it says jealousy eyed David from that day forward. Another version says turned a jealous eye on David. Another version, the New Berkeley said it kept an envious eye on David. In other words, David drew the attention, not in a good way, of Saul. From that moment on, when they came back into the city from a great victory and a great powerful moment, when they had defeated the enemy and things looked like they were going very, very well, the Bible tells us that there was a very sinister thing that began to work in the life of David. Saul, in his jealousy, Saul, in his anger, he looked at him in when evil eye if you will and he watched him and he looked at him he didn't trust him anymore he didn't like him anymore but he was bound by the will of the people there was very little he could do about it but it began to eat at him it began to work at him it began to get a hold of him and everything David did everything David said every place David went the Bible tells us Saul eyed him. Was that fair? No. No. Did David deserve that? Absolutely not. But Saul was jealous. And thus began, if you will, a journey in David's life that nobody wants to go through. You see, it almost doesn't seem fair that God would allow David to go into the badlands of his life, to journey into that place of forsakenness. It's going to be the badlands of his life that the Bible tells us, if you look deep, lasted for approximately six, seven, even eight years of his life. David was trapped in the messiness of the badlands of his life. He will be hounded by Saul, and he will endure more than 20 different attempts or efforts by Saul to take his life. You see, when you journey in the badlands, it's not a pretty place. People don't like you. People look down on you. You could be doing absolutely the perfect will of God in your life, but somebody will turn an evil eye on you, and things will get unfair very, very quickly. You see, David was raised to fame after the death of Goliath, but yet David never pursued that fame. He never sought the praise of the people around him. He never chose to go out and languish in all of the praise that they gave him. But understand this. He passed under the hard hand of discipline and training. It wasn't easy. But little did David know that through that unfairness and through the traveling of those bad lands in his life, God was preparing him for something that nobody else could imagine was beginning to take place in his life. Look at the biographies of great men and women of the past. You will always discover that somewhere in their history there was a bad land. You will always find that somewhere back in the moments when they were beginning to rise in their calling or rise in their purpose or rise in their ability, there was a place somewhere in there in almost every one of them that we can think of that there were struggles, there were hardships, there were times when they had to deny themselves and just keep pursuing their effort and push forward 
forward when it seemed like it was impossible to even gain the strength to get out of bed in the morning. But yet because of the call, because of the purpose, because of the prize of the high calling, if you will, they drove themselves and they pushed themselves. And in spite of the unfairness of their lives, they got up. They went about their business, and they accomplished the call of God on their lives. William Blakey one time said this, O adversity, thy features are hard, thy fingers are of iron, they look, thy look is stern and repulsive, but underneath thy hard crust lies a true heart, full of love, full of hope. If only we had grace to believe this in times when we are bound with affliction and iron. If only we had faith to look forward for just a little, we might understand. You see, as hard as they are, the bad lands are necessary because they harden us. And they make us grow up and become who God wants us to be. Life is not fair. I don't want to be the one to bust your bubble. But better me than somebody else. I'm your pastor. You got to love me. So let me do it. <clears throat> In his book, Eugene Peterson, he wrote a book entitled The Pastor. It's a, a book of memoirs of 50 years in the ministry. He wrote about the start of a small church plant outside of Washington, D.C. in the suburbs of Maryland. There was a lot of energy generated by that little band of people that gathered together and began to worship the Lord. Uh, they, they went there through five years of existence. Three years after the congregation was established, they went into a building program that lasted for two years. All right? I'm praying ours won't last two years, not unless we're on our second building. That would be awesome. Then we can go two years. So they went into a building program, and they went from his basement to a very nice building that sat about 300 or so. And he wrote that the energy was contagious in those moments. The energy they had, it was excitement. It was palpable. You could feel it. You could almost taste it when you walked into the building. Energy from everybody. When the building was finished... Peterson knew that this was the beginning of great things to come. Woo, my lands. Wonderful, wonderful. He felt the sky was the limit. We're just going to keep going up and up and up and up and up. Woo, somebody say glory. Let me know. All right, glory. Yeah, he knew it. But then he began to notice. I hate the buts in stories, don't you? But then he began to notice about two months after the building was completed, the attendance began to drift downward. <clears throat> he said that he would let people miss about six weeks of services, and after that he would go seek them out, talk to them, and try to find out what was going on. What he found was troubling. He said that not a single one of them was disgruntled. They weren't angry. They weren't upset. They didn't have anything bad to say about the church, the pastor, the leadership, anybody. They just didn't have anything really to say about it. It was that the goal of building the church... And the excitement and the thrill 
and that palpable atmosphere of we are doing something and we're involved in something, it was over because the building was already built. And now the real work came of filling it up. And one by one they dropped like flies. He said that the melee spread through the congregation. He said that he could feel the adrenaline slip out of his very soul. His words, folks, not mine. He desperately wanted to recapture the spirit that he had brought them into the energy, but he couldn't seem to find what would do it. He couldn't seem to find any way. He noted that in writing his memoirs and looking back, he was about to enter a time that he called the badlands of his ministry. The other thing that he did not know was that it was going to last for six long, tiresome, dry years. It's a long time. Long time. How he came up with the concept of the Badlands was because of a summer trip he took one time with his family up to South Dakota. My wife and I and our girls, we got to go there a few years ago, traveled through the Badlands. They're pretty but ugly at the same time. There are deep caverns and there are cuts in the earth. And, and uh, the, the thing about the Badlands is that when you walk through them, what you see are layers and layers and layers that remind you that, you know what, it always wasn't this low. There always wasn't this cavern that was here. There always wasn't this valley that we're here. But if you look over, you'll see a, a remote remembrance of what once used to be. And you see the layer upon layer upon layer of sand in different colors. Very beautiful, but very ugly at the same time. You see, in the Badlands, nothing is green or growing. There's no trees. There's no water. There's very few towns. When we went up to South Dakota, we probably drove 150 miles before we saw another person. We followed a mail lady one time. She stopped, and I know she put mailbox in a mail, a mail in a mailbox, and there was no house to be seen except a trail that went about six miles back and disappeared over a hill. Somewhere back there, there was a house. We followed her for 10 miles before she got to the second mailbox and dropped off another piece of mail. In that area, it's just, you know, it's, it's desolate. And it was a place where there wasn't much going on. And he said that that was exactly how he felt. In that moment of his life, no energy, no purpose, nowhere that he could look to for hope or for dreams. He said that uh, right now, as it is, he takes an annual pilgrimage up to the Badlands every year just to remind him of what he went through in that place. And while he was there one time, he wrote a poem. Flash floods of tears, torrents of them. Erode cruel canyons, exposing long-forgotten strata of life. Laid down in peaceful decades, a bad land's beauty. The same sun that decorates each day with colors from arroyos and mesas also shows every old scar, every cut and lament. Weeping washes the wounds clean and leaves them to heal, which always takes an age or two. No pain is ugly in past sense. Under the mercy, every hurt is a fossil. Link in the great chain of becoming. Pick and shovel prayers often. Ever feel like you just got to drive your prayers home because they're not going anywhere? Feel like I'm digging at the ground with a pick. And finally, turn them up in valleys of death. He learned that building a group of people called the church 
would not always be a fertile farmland and rolling green hills. There wouldn't be grand horizons and majestic mountains every day. He learned that any growth, character, spiritual, church, or soul, is always going to have periods of dormancy when it appears that nothing is happening. He wrote that all of a sudden, he was no longer living a life that went from accomplishment to accomplishment and from goal to goal. He now had to learn to submit to the conditions, enter into those conditions, embrace those conditions, and work within the confines of those conditions. All of a sudden, his competitive spirit and achievements in previous venues were worthless. It didn't matter what he had done six years ago. Today, it didn't count for much because he was in the valley of the Badlands. Difficult time. He said that when he returned the first time that the Lord had considerably chastened him or punished him, not really punished him, but, you know, how you, you, you get on to your kids. I always say God slaps me in the back of the head, you know, and says, hey, dummy. Um, well, that's what happened to him. God slapped him in the back of the head. And he said that he did not know what he was going to do, but he knew what he wasn't going to do. He wasn't going to turn church into a pep rally for Jesus. But rather he was going to learn how to let the badlands of life turn him into a true worshiper. It is not a pep rally. It is not about rah, 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 shish, boom, bah, whatever else. Go Jesus. I wish it was. I love pep rallies. When I was in high school, I played in the high school band. Man, we loved pep rallies. We'd run through that. I was in percussion, and I'd hit that drum, and I can still hear it echoing in the hallway of the high school. And we'd play louder and louder and louder. And uh, I, I love those times, but it's not always that way. When we would win a football game, the whole band would get out there and we did something we used to call the snake, man. On our way back to the bus, we would do this, and just this whole trail all the way up down to the bus to go home. If we lost, we'd slink away, you know, and hide. But if we won, we wanted everybody to know. So we would do that. I love those moments. But understand, those are our high points. And they are moments that I will cherish and hold to and love and remember and desire and just embrace in every way that I can. And you should too. You should hold on to those moments and hold on to those accomplishments and hold on with everything you've got because, honey, they're not very good down the line to always come exactly when you want them. So hold on to them. But understand, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to go quickly. I got about 47 more pages of notes. No, I'm just kidding. But the badlands create character. When God starts making a man or a woman after his own heart, he works far differently than what we think. The badlands create character that brings out the shaping of a child of God. They become a man or woman of prayer. They become a man or woman of self-control. They become a man or woman who considers others over himself. They become a man or woman who understands what hope is because every day they hope for a better moment. They understand that the, you know, a man or a woman becomes an individual that understands and senses the vitality in a trial or a problem. They begin to focus in on that. David, that man after God's own heart, has the cup of honor jerked away from him. 
before he ever got to taste the sweet nectar that it contained. It was swiped from his very grasp. Consider the badlands for me, if you will. I'm, I still got some time in David's life. Promises from Saul are deliberately violated and broken. Rewards for dangerous service were withheld. He never saw the promised rewards. He was forced into separation from the family and friends he had grown to love. He sees some of his closest friends slaughtered. They gave their lives under the hand of Saul and his minions just for being associated with him. Ungrateful treatment from some of those that he had actually helped. And they turned their back on him. Not only did they turn their back on him, they turned him in. Betrayal of men who he had actually fought and sweat and bled for to defend them, and yet they betrayed him in the end. Talk about life not being fair. Deceit on the part of one he had trusted, a close inner circle man by the name of Cush. He loved him. He was close to him. But yet there was deceit found in him. Assassination was threatened by some of his own followers in Ziklag. Friends, life is not fair. David's complaint could have been, wait a minute, but, but I've been anointed. You see, all of this happened after he was anointed. All of this happened after Samuel poured the oil on his head. All of this happened after Samuel said, you're going to be a great leader and a great man one day. After the promise, after the anointing, after the power, after all of the wonderful grand moments that his mind went through, thinking I am anticipating, I am looking, I am hoping, I am dreaming. After all of that is when all this happened. And it could have been, wait a minute. I'm on my way to being the king. But folks, it was the badlands that were going to turn him into the kind of king God needed and God wanted. Perhaps the most important things the badlands of our lives will do for us is they will create an absolute dependence on God. When I have nothing else, I depend on God. I dare say that in America, one of our greatest challenges is learning that. We have a safety net for everything. And if there isn't one, they're trying to make up one. You see... Samuel chapter 19 and verse 9, and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. He sat in his house, javelin in his hand, and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away. Note the phrase, David fled and escaped. Do you hear that? What does that mean? That means somebody was after him. Somebody was actively wanting to destroy him. Somebody was actively chasing him actively seeking his demise, actively wanting to see him torn down. That statement, that phrase would be replayed 25 times in 1 Samuel. 25 times. God starts stripping David of some of the things that he had grown so accustomed to. He's stripped of his good name and his position. He is stripped of his wife, Michael, 
Over time, she begins to turn on him and becomes just as murderous toward him as her father was. He is stripped of Samuel. Death takes Samuel away from him, the very one that had anointed him and raised him up. It would have been his pastor, if you will. He's taken away by death. He is stripped of his closest friend, Jonathan, taken away. Nobody to turn to. He is stripped of his self-respect. We see him wallowing on the ground and foaming in the mouth in front of King Achish. No dignity left. It is the trip through the badlands of his life, all in the name of making him a man after God's own heart. <laughs> Whew. You still want to be a man or woman after God's own heart? You still want to say, Lord, I want to be everything you want me to be? You see, we are going to go through trials, and I promise you that all of us, every one of us, will have our dark moments, our dark times. Some of you, I know personally what you're going through. I see it. I watch your lives. I know what God is doing. I know what God is taking you through. We've talked about it. We've prayed about it together. And I want you to understand that as much as I feel and don't want you to go through it and don't want you to have to deal with it and don't want you to have to face it, I've got to sit back sometimes and say, Dear Lord, all I can do is say, Keep them. In your loving hand because I know that when they come through just as you spoke before that when I am tried I will come forth as pure gold and I will be all that God wants me to be but it takes the badlands it takes the stripping away of all that we hold dear, of all that we hold on to. It takes my dignity away. I don't care if you see me prostrate on the ground, crying like a baby, drooling out of my mouth. And can I be so gross as to say snot dripping down my face? If that's what it takes for me to get a hold of the thrones of glory, then that's what it takes. If it takes me stripping myself of every bit of dignity I've got and wallowing in an altar, laying before God, crying out to God, being so burdened that I can't even speak the words, praying, God, let the Holy Ghost pray through me because I don't have the words to express what my heart says. Just strip me of all of that. Take me through the trials. Take me through the heartache. Take me through the pain. Take that gouging, the badlands, those deep, dark gouges come out of your life. Oh, it's hurtful, friend. It's painful. And every time it opens up, you begin to see remnants of what once was. But God, I used to be this, or I used to be that. Friend, that hasn't changed. Sometimes I think what the Lord is trying to do is to remind us of what our past was like. You used to be a man, a woman of prayer. You used to know what it was like to sacrifice. You used to know what it was like to come to an altar and not care whether anybody else was there or not, but throw yourself down before God and cry out to your Savior and talk to him regardless of who else was there. You see, the battles that we fight, the badlands that we go through strip all of that bare. And they remind us, they remind us. So sometimes I want you to know the pain, it is enormous. It is enormous. Sometimes it is the instability of some support that we might have had in the past, and I'm bringing this to a close now. Sometimes it's a broken romance. Sometimes it's a golden opportunity that has long since vanished and dripped out of our hand like water. Sometimes it's the death of a dream. Sometimes it's a period of time that hope seems to die. Oh, I'm not trying to depress you tonight. Sometimes it's a diagnosis, cancer, 
failure of something, heart disease, physical pain that will not leave. Sometimes it is when your joy has just simply evaporated and it's no longer there. But I will tell you this, all of God's greatest men and women have had to go through the badlands. All of them. Abraham with a promise that seemed to take absolutely forever to accomplish. He even tried to make it happen himself, only got himself in more trouble. Joseph had a dream that almost never materialized. In fact, it turned his own brothers against him because they could not imagine him in that place. Moses, with a mistake that sidelined him for 40 years. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, with eyes and heart full of tears. Paul, with an irascible, nagging thorn in his side that he sought God to remove and take away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. I'm not going to take it away. You're going to deal with it because it reminds you of who you are. There are a host of others that we can find throughout their ministry and their walk with God that they have had to go through the badlands. They have had to go through the trials and the hardship and the pain and the scourging and the drying out until they couldn't even cry anymore. They've had to go through it. But oh, friend, when they came out the other side, there was something powerful that happened to them. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I've got a crown. I've got a place. I'm going somewhere. Andrew Murray, a great writer who encouraged prayer and deeper life, once found himself facing a terrible, terrible crisis. As our musicians come, and I bring this to a close this night, he gathered himself into a study, and he sat for a long time, prayerfully, thoughtfully. His mind flew at last to his Lord Jesus, and picking up his pen, he wrote these words in his daily journal. First, he said, he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And lastly, he penned these words in his journal. In his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. How and when he knows. Can I tell you this? You are where you are by God's appointment. God has brought you to this point in your life. You may not like it. It may not feel exactly the way you thought it might feel. But I want you to hold true into this fact. And I want you to rest in this fact.
God brought you here. Number two, realize that you are in His keeping. You're in His hand. Jesus even said, nobody can take you out of the Father's hand. You're in His keeping. He will look over you. He will watch over you. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, one of His greatest laments was when He looked over Israel. And he said, oh, Israel, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood. That's what he wanted to do. It was his desire that he would keep them, protect them, put his loving arms over them. They just wouldn't let him do it. You tonight have an opportunity to let him do that. You are in his keeping. Number three. You are under his training. He is not done. You are not where he's going to leave you. This is not where you will be next week. This is not where you will be next year. This is not where you will remain the rest of your life. He is training you for greater things. Lastly, it will happen in his time. In his time. Would you stand with me tonight? I feel so burdened to bring this message to us tonight. For whatever reason, I know that we battle and we struggle. And I know that in the middle of our bad lands we choose too often to quit to give up and to turn around in closing I want to tell you the story there's a place called Wall South Dakota true story and in this city we got to go there by the way and we got to get some of their wonderful ice water Ice water saved a man's family, saved a business, saved a town. In Wall, South Dakota, the town was dying. A man went there and opened up a drugstore with a commitment that they'll give it five years, and if it doesn't work, then he's going to pack up his family, he's going to leave. About four and a half years into that, it was looking bad. The town was dying. Another road was being built just far enough away that people were totally and absolutely bypassing the city. No longer were they driving through Main Street. They were taking the expressway around. This was back in the day when it meant something. So he and a young fella got together and they said, we're just going to try something, anything, but we're just not going to sit here. And we're not going to soak up our badlands. We're not just going to sit here and do nothing. And so they made some signs. They took them out by the highway. And they began to put up some signs. Free ice water at well drugstore. People were intrigued. People were fascinated. And he said the first day they went out there and were holding up the signs, get a root beer, get a float, and they were waving these signs as passers-by would just brush by them. Before they could ever get back to the drugstore that first day, they had already run out of ice. Because people were so intrigued by what these guys were doing that there were so many people turning off the highway, going down a dusty, dirty road where it looked like there was nothing there, pulling into a town where there was a tiny drugstore giving away free ice water. 
true story. He said it got so bad we ran out of the chipped ice. I had to go to the back and I had to start chipping a block of ice. People were saying, can I have my free water? Yes, come on. He said at the end of the day, his words, we were so pooped. We just went home and passed out in our chair. Why? Because I wasn't going to let the badlands of my life destroy me. I wasn't going to let the badlands of my life dictate to me who I was and what I would become. I was going to stand firm. I was going to stand holy. I was going to stand righteous. They don't define you. Do not let the badlands tell you who you are. You tell them who you are. When they strip away every layer and it shows the layers of hurt and pain and you see all of that exposed to the elements, don't look at that in a bad way. You can embrace it. Yes, that's what I used to be. That's who I used to be. That's what I once was. But by the grace of God, I am no longer. Tonight, whether you are new in your walk with God, or whether you have lived for God for 50 years, I'm asking you if you would step out and gather at this altar with me just for a few more moments tonight. I know that tomorrow is a school day, and I'm going to pray for our children that God will bless them anyhow. Parents, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I lied. I'm not sorry. But I believe this, that God will take care of your children tomorrow at school. I'm going to pray for that. But right now, if we could just take a few minutes and say, God, I'm going through some bad lands. I've got some heartaches and I've got some pains. I've got some areas of my life that have been exposed to the elements. And it hurts, Jesus. It hurts, Jesus. It hurts. It hurts. I feel like Peter after denying you three times. I have to run away and hide and just, oh, repent and, and get my life back together. But Lord, I refuse. I refuse to let those things define me. You see, I'm journeying through the badlands. I have no intention of staying here. I have no intention of making this my home. I have no intention of staying in the place that I am right now. But while I'm here, teach me, Lord. While I'm here, mold me, Lord. While I'm here, make me into who you want me to be. Help me to understand the realities of who I am. Help me to learn the things that I can learn no other way except a journey through the badlands of life. Help me to embrace things that I will never understand. Help me to look at other people with compassion because I've walked through the very same badlands and I can see their life in a whole new light. I understand what they're struggling with, Lord. I understand the bottom of where they're at. But I also understand there's coming a day when they will rise up from the badlands and they will journey into a place that flows with milk and honey. Saints, life will take you through the badlands. It'll take you through hardships. It'll take you through some trials. It'll beat you up, chew you up, and spit you out. I'd like to tell you that it's not true, but it is true. I've got to tell you that. But I can also tell you this. One day, David did walk 
back into Jerusalem. That city that he ran from, that city that he escaped from, that city that he had thrown the towel in and said, I've got to get out of here. Oh, no, one day. Whew. And I remember one glorious day. <laughs> he came back in, and he was high-stepping, and he was dancing, and he was juking and jiving. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was right behind him. Woo! David, what about the badlands? Oh, they made me who I am. What about the hardships and the trials? They made me strong. They made me powerful. They made me have a hard skin. They made me understand what passion and love and victory is really like. The badlands of David's life is what made him want so desperately to bring the Ark of a Covenant back to Jerusalem. Because he had lived long enough without it. You realize up until that time in David's life, he never knew what it was like to have the ark in Jerusalem. His entire life, it had been gone. They lost it way back way back before he was ever anointed, way back before he ever ascended to the throne, way back before ever he ran for his life, way back then David never knew the power. But the moment somebody came to him and said, David, you shouldn't have stopped so easy the first time. You know that place you, you, you put it in? Man, they are being blessed. Woohoo! I've never seen crops so pretty. I've never seen cattle so fat. I've never seen the blessings of God on any one place so much. And David said, we got to have some of that. We're going to go at it again. We're going to go after it again. So you may have tried at one time in your life, and you might have failed. You may have given it your all and realized that somewhere along that road, something went wrong, something happened. And it scared you. And it drove you into a hiding like it did David. Can I just tell you something? Look around you. Find somebody that's been through the badlands in their life and has been blessed. Find somebody to look to and say, I want some of that. I want some of what you've got, my brother. I want some of the power. I want some of the ministry. I want to see lives changed as you guys are seeing every day. I want some of that. And it will cause you to rise up and say, we're going to do this one more because the badlands do not define who I am. When I journey through the badlands, God bless you tonight. As we sing a chorus, just take a few minutes and let the Lord minister to us in this house. Oh, hallelujah. Why don't you lift your hands and just give the Lord. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Yes, you are, yes, you are, and I believe. Do you believe it? You're my Declare it. Lord, I believe. I believe. I believe. You're more than I believe in your trueness. I believe in your power. I believe in your glory. I believe in your purpose. I believe in your character. I believe in your integrity. I believe in your ability. I believe in your glory, Jesus. I believe. And I believe that you will see me through. That you will bring me out victorious. That I will emerge stronger. 
better, more committed, more powerful than I have ever been in my life. Yes, you when are. I journey yes, through you are. the badlands, I believe. Oh, hallelujah! Hallelujah! A man after God's own heart. A woman after God's own heart. Because of my journey. Because it's made me strong. Because it's made me committed. Because it's made me who I am today. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. 